0: You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Well, welcome here today. Uh, it's. It, I don't know if you know this, but today is a party day. Um, in fact, uh, I, I'm not sure. Anybody have a birthday today? Anyone in the room? Today's your... Right here. Really? Ed, Is your birthday today? Awesome. Uh, anyone have a birthday in like the last week? This is your birthday week. Pretty much all of. All right. Awesome. Janine over here. Carol over there. Anybody else? Oh, in the back. Awesome. Good to see you. Uh, well, happy birthday. I just want to let you know, we threw a birthday party for you today. It's called Church. And I invite all these people, right, for you. So you you get, like, a special day today. We're so glad that you're here. And how many of you like celebrating your birthday, right? It's kind of cool, right? And I want you to know, like, we're talking through this series called Identity, Formation, Community, Mission. And one of the beautiful things about it is we learn our identity in Christ when we become part of his forever family, Think about that. Some of you are like, I'm ready to get out of my temporary family, and I'd like to be a part of a forever healthy, good family. God calls us into that. He says, You're my son or my daughter, whom I love, in whom I am well. Pleased, So we're called right into identity. Then we walk through formation where you and I are tried and tested and tempted. It's where we build spiritual muscle. It's where we begin to learn and get out of our old habits and, and pick up new habits and drop down our old ways of doing things and pick up new healthy ways of doing things. And so we do that in formation. Then we move to community. And Jesus did that when he was baptized. His identity was given. Then he was tried, tested, and tempted by the devil in the desert for 40 days. Then he comes back and he chooses his friends Jesus understands the importance of community. If you're ever gonna get on mission, in fact, think of it this way, Jesus, his ultimate mission was not to do it all himself, but to unleash the church to say, I'm giving you this mission to proclaim the good news about me, but throughout the whole world. And after he was crucified, he was here for 40 days, and then he ascended back up into heaven. He gets you and I on mission. Even today, God says, I've chosen you to be the ones who proclaim the message about me to all the earth. But you're only gonna get that, you're only gonna understand that if you become about community. You've heard that a leadership slogan, if you wanna go faster, do it yourself. If you wanna go farther, involve other people. Jesus understand he wanted the church to be a world changer, not just a first century city changer. He wanted to go throughout the whole world and so he chooses you and me to do that, but that happens within the context of community. I once heard a pastor say that one of the amazing things about Jesus is that he rarely spent time with religious people. Think about that for a minute. Jesus didn't come to earth and just say, I'm going to hang out with the Pharisees. The Sadducees, these established religious, like it would be like saying, I'm gonna hang out with the pastors and the priests or something, right? Jesus didn't come down and hang out with those. He kept going after the furthest out people. The people he chose in community around him, his disciples were oftentimes uneducated, regular blue collar worker type people. He got a guy who was a zealot. This guy was willing to give his life to overthrow the Roman occupation. He was a political just, you know, zealot. And Jesus chose people like that to be part of his community. Though Jesus himself was a righteous person, he was the Holy One, he always tried to get in front of unrighteous people. And when Jesus showed up in the first century, ungodly people liked him, and they weren't intimidated by him. More than likely, picture this a minute, if you were in the first century, and you were interacting with Jesus, you would walk up to him and you would, you would see him, you would see his holiness, his pure, awesome, holy eyes and they would look into your eyes and instantly in your head, you would think, I wonder if he knows what I did last weekend. You would think, oh my goodness, I wonder if he knows about my spring break trip down to the Sea of Galilee. <laughs> he, would, he would, you'd be sitting there going like, if only he knew what was really going on in my life. If only he knew the ways that I've backed myself into a corner. If only he knew the ways that that I, in my heart of hearts, have trapped myself. Nevertheless, the fact remains that ungodly people liked Jesus. Those who were nothing like him flocked to hear him speak. Pastor Andy Stanley says this, any organization, any business, any movement must answer the tension between reaching non-customers and merely keeping up with the status quo, right? There's a tension there. If you're a business owner, you understand this. How do we help our customers and how do we gain new customers, right? Andy Stanley goes on to say this, the local church is supposed to be the eyes and hands and ears and feet of Jesus in our culture, but for some reason churches drift from having the same effect on people that Jesus did. So here's the question why was jesus so attractive to people who are nothing like him the answer to that question will determine more to get you on mission with people within your community it will do more to determine how you operate your business it will do more to determine how you as a christian work with ungodly people in your workplace it will do more to help you understand as you as a potential christian interact with ungodly, unchristian people in your extended family or your regular family. It will do more to help you understand how you as a Christian interact with ungodly non-Christians on your high school campus or in your dorm room or in your apartment, and it will do more to determine the direction and quality of your life. If we can answer the question, why was Jesus so attractive to people who were nothing like him? If you're taking notes today, you've got to. An outline in your program looks like this. Once you take that out, we're going to take some notes here together today. Sometimes writing it down helps reinforce it in ways that just listening can never do. And we're going to realize this, that we have to ask ourselves some honest questions. The first honest question we have to ask ourselves is this. Are we focused on reaching people more than simply keeping people? Every business has to ask this question, right? Are we just going to keep our customers and make sure they don't launch from our platform to some other platform? Or are we interested in reaching people and where is that tension? And the church has to ask the same thing and because the church is not simply just an organization, it's an organism. And because you are the church, you have to ask this question about yourself. Make it personal. Am I focused on reaching people more than simply keeping the people I already have in my life? maybe the healthy people, the Christians, the people I've put in community around me? and I am more interested in reaching people than merely keeping whoever I already have going on in my life? Now listen, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I just want to say you were in exactly the right place. Maybe you're not a Christian. Maybe you used to be. Uh, maybe you're trying to figure Jesus out or maybe you had a bad experience with religious or churchy people. By the way, how many of you in this room, at one point in your life, you just had a bad day, a bad experience, a bad opportunity with church-ish people? Anyway, all over the room, right? All of us, right? So many of us have done that. And that's why it's so good that we have Jesus in our life because he is the good shepherd. He is the one who determines our identity. He is the king of kings, the lord of lords. But maybe you have just had a bad experience or you just don't know what you believe and here's what I know. If you met Jesus, if you walked in here today, if you walked out into the lobby and he came walking in, if you met him, here's what I know. You would like him. And he would like you. And you would look into those pure and holy eyes and you would feel like you are drawn to him. And that you are loved by him even though he sees you fully and he knows you fully. See, in the first century Jewish culture, there was a system that was pretty brutal. And that system that was pretty brutal is that there had a distinction between what they would call sinners and tax gatherers. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to your neighbor and and just say, as nasty as you can, just say, sinners. Okay, ready to do that. Turn to the people next to you. How many of you hate when I say, turn to the neighbor next to you? Just raise your hand. Yes, all right. So now turn to your other neighbor and say, tax gatherers. Say it even more nasty. Right, right, right. There was a distinction, like literally in the first century, the, the tax gatherers, you got to understand they were traitors in their own culture who enriched themselves at the expense of their countrymen and women. And it, literally, if you knew you were a horrible sinner, if you were like, that's ah, me, I'm an adulterer, I'm a murderer, I'm a thief. If you, if you, I mean, you went down the list, if you went to the Ten Commandments and you just went straight down, you're like, that's me. And you went right down the list. At the end of the list, you could say, but at least I'm not a tax gatherer. And everybody would be like <laughs> That's how bad tax gatherers were. I mean, picture for just a moment. It was an occupied country. So not only would you have your tax and not only would you go to church and pay your, your tithe, which is just returning to God what's already his, but, but your taxes could be wrapped up with a lot of that. So you pay your Jewish tax, you'd, you'd pay your tithe to the church, and then knocking on your door, Become a Jewish person who's rejected his or her own culture, and they would have a couple police officers with them, and they would say, Hey, we're here to collect the Roman tax, a foreign occupying nation tax, and they would just determine what that is often on the spot and take from you. And if you didn't pay, the police officers there were to soften you up to make sure you were there to pay. Picture for a minute how much you would hate April. You would pay your American taxes, you'd honor the Lord with the first as a, as a believer. But then some foreign occupying nation would come and say, "Now we're taking our cut. And that's who the tax gatherers were in Jesus' day. Are you getting the picture? They would send along with them. Rome and say, listen, you go collect this amount. This is what we require, but you gotta make a living so you can collect whatever you want above and beyond that, but just make sure we get our cut. And in order to do that, we're gonna send two Roman soldiers, spears, swords, armor, to break the kneecaps of anybody who doesn't wanna pay their taxes. Can you imagine how much you'd be hated by your former fellow country men and women? These guys embezzled over the top so that they could increase their own wealth. And let me tell you, it was a classic government sanctioned pyramid scheme. And these guys were the worst because not only did you have your tax gatherers, but above them there was a chief tax gatherer. Everyone say chief tax gatherer. Chief. Right, so the chief would take a cut from all the underlings under him or her that would, that would do that. And so they would just personally enrich their world because of the embezzlement of their own people. And people in the cities, people in the towns would look at the living style. They would look at the, the houses and the, the, you know the transportation and the clothing. They would see these people and they would hate their guts all the time because they knew they were just getting wealthy on your own embezzlement. Well, Jesus is up in Jerusalem, and he's going to travel down into the desert. It'd be like being up in near Tahoe, maybe, and your your the geography of the land is kind of pine trees up in Jerusalem, but then you travel down into the desert, it'd be like dropping down from there back into, you know, Nevada, but not into high desert like Reno. You wouldn't go to high desert. You actually would travel from Jerusalem down into below sea level, low desert, where you'd see it almost be like being at Vegas, Uh, but, but it wasn't as big a town. There was a town called Jericho, and Jericho was a very important town for trade, and it was a very, it was almost like Palm Desert. It was almost like Palm Springs, that the wealthy could go down there, that it was a temperate climate, that that it was, you know, you had enough water, but it also was dry enough that you weren't raining and seeping on you. It didn't snow down there. It can snow in Jerusalem in the winter. And so all these things would happen. They would live down there, and Jesus is traveling from Jerusalem, and he and his disciples are going downhill. They're going down into the desert, and they get to the city of Jericho, and there's a man in the city of Jericho. His name is Zacchaeus, now, if you've been around church circles a lot, like let's say you grew up in a Christian church, there is a song about Zacchaeus, and the song says Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and every man who works for the IRS says, you cannot call me Zacchaeus because I'm not a wee little man. We don't like that line, you know, so, and, and so he was a short guy, but he worked, and let me tell you, in our church, we've got some phenomenal people who work for the IRS, and they're not selling out their countrymen to collect taxes but they're doing due diligence within our government. But let me say that was not the case in Zacchaeus' day. He was selling everybody out around him. He was not just a tax gatherer. He was a tax collecting supervisor. He was a chief tax collector. And this guy lived in his Mediterranean mansion. And he just was a little short stature guy who thought his wealth made him a big man. You know the guy. But this is, this is the guy who, who in, in Zacchaeus' day, if there were trucks, he would drive a massive, oversized truck with an ultimately lifted suspension. That's what he would be driving, right? He was a little guy who wanted to get up above everybody. He wanted to think that his wealth made him a big man. That's who Zacchaeus was. But because they didn't have trucks in that day, he probably had a very big camel or a lot of camels or however they got around. He was just a little man who thought that his wealth made him a big man. So Jesus entered Jericho in Luke 19, verse 1. If you have your Bible open there, Luke 19, begin with verse 1, says that Jesus entered Jericho. Picture him and his disciples walking into that town. He entered Jericho, he was passing through, it wasn't his ultimate destination. Verse 2 a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector. And he was wealthy. And he wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and he climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Now picture this. Word spreads throughout the town. Jesus, Jesus is coming to our town. He's coming here. And maybe, it, like a lot of people, they're like, if you, if you have the gift of hospitality, if you're like, maybe, maybe he and his disciples want to get put up somewhere. Maybe he'll stay at my house. And you're trying to say, hey, I'm a religious person. Maybe he'll, he'll stay with me, or I, you know, and, well, what if? Well, maybe he'll heal something. And so Jesus is coming to town. And what he would do is he's walking through the town and he goes up to this guy named Zacchaeus. But like, I got to tell you something. When I was younger, I've got brothers and we used to play things that we would call like war and you know, we'd have little like cap guns and then they turned into like Nerf guns. And then after that, uh, we learned paintball guns. How many of you have played paintball? How many of you uh, remember the welt you got from paintball? Okay, it's not a pretty picture, right? When, you, when that thing hits you, oh, but when you shoot someone else, it is good time. So we would go out and we would play these kind of things. And, and I don't know why, but for me, a lot of times I would say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up in an elevated position. I'm going to snipe people. And I would climb up in a tree, right? and Because when you're in a tree, you're in an elevated position. It's like, don't do it, Anakin. I have the high ground, right? So you're in an elevated position. And so you're up there and, and you can see better, you uh, can snipe people from further away, and and it is awesome. I mean, it's why people who are like hunters, they go up in a tree blind. Why do they call it tree blind? Because they get up there, they're in an elevated position, they can see the trails, but and the wildlife, they're looking at ground level, like they don't think people fly into trees like birds. So they're just like, hey, you know, they're looking around for the hunter, and, and, and they can't smell you as good, and some of those things. So you know, it's an elevated position. It's a position of power. You have better visibility. You can be unnoticed. I remember being up there and I've got a paintball gun and, and like I, these guys come up and they sneak up and they're like this down by, you know, right at the base of the tree. And I'm like, oh, I can just double tap you on the top of the head. And you don't think that hurts, believe me, you know? Right? So it's just awesome. And so you're in this elevated position and it's great until you become discovered. Because now you're treed, right? It's bad for an animal to have to run away and get up a tree. If you're a hunter, you're like, hey, he's not going anywhere. We need to take our time, knock him down, right, or whatever. And it's because all of a sudden, when you get noticed in the tree, you are in an incredibly vulnerable position. Until then, until you're noticed, you are very puffed up. I can see better. I'm more visible. I'm hidden. I'm isolated. I'm powerful. But as soon as you get noticed, you get deflated right away. By the way, being deflated must happen before you can be filled up, not puffed up, but filled up. Zacchaeus had treed himself long before he ever climbed a tree, he had separated himself from society he had walked away from relationship with people. He had rejected his own countrymen. He had put his being and his identity and his formation and any community was his wealth. His best friends were wealth. And he was probably a lonely man too. Because along with all his wealth and all his pyramid scheme would become suspicion. And it's hard to have friends when you can't trust, right? He had treated himself long before he climbed the tree. Let me ask you. Have you treated yourself? What's backed you into a corner? For some of you, you know, you know what it is. It has a name, and that thing has backed you up a tree, and, and you think as long as I can stay hidden there, then, then I'm in a position of power. But as soon as that thing gets exposed, then you're gonna say, I am deflated. For others of you, you're gonna say, I- I'm not sure what that is, and and maybe you've treated yourself, let me be very careful here, maybe you've treated yourself with comfort. Maybe you think God has called you to be a part of a comfortable forever family, but he has called us to be part of a war. Do you realize that God called us to be part of a war? That when you and I were born, we were born into war. We were not born into comfort. There is a day when God makes all things right, when we have heaven, when we have paradise. But until that, we're called into a war. And maybe you've treated yourself because you've called yourself into comfort. I don't want problems. I want to have enough to live on. I don't want to have to get uncomfortable in my life. I wouldn't go to the end of the world for God. Are you kidding me? I don't leave this country. And whatever it is, right? You're just saying, hey, I'm comfortable. And you have treated yourself like Zacchaeus. And you don't have to be ultimately wealthy to treat yourself, do you? Because maybe it's our spending that backs us into a corner. Maybe it's our addictions that back us into a corner. Maybe it's our rejection, that we don't need other people in our life, that I can do this thing on my own, I can do the Christian life on my own, I can isolate myself from my own forever family and think I can do it on my own. Maybe you've treed yourself. There's a young pitcher and he entered the minor leagues and this guy, just an amazing, amazing talent, and he enters the minor leagues and uh, he just had a pretty good arsenal of pitches, but the one thing he was lacking was a curveball. So the pitching coach comes along and just, just says, hey, uh, let me see what you got. Shows him all his pitches. He goes, Alright, let's work, let's begin to work on the curveball. And the pitcher, like he could just see on this young person's face that he just dug his heels in. He's like, I don't need it. Like literally everywhere I've been, I am golden. And I've just ridden on my talent the whole way, and I don't need that curveball thing. The wise thing about the pitching coach is he goes, Alright, didn't say another word. Let's this pitcher go in, and the guy gets rocked game after game for a couple games pitcher comes back, this young pitcher comes back to his coach and he says, hey, um, will you teach me how to throw the curveball? He said, absolutely. See, sometimes you and I are puffed up life's been good, life's been easy, whatever, and all of a sudden you get treed by something, right? All of a sudden the speed of life, the speed of everything changes, and you realize you're not in the minor, minor leagues anymore, you're just in the minor leagues. So the pitching coach begins to work with this young pitcher, and he begins to develop an amazing curveball, and listen, it was that curveball that became his ticket to the big leagues. They didn't want him for all his other pitches necessarily, they just said, this guy has the most unbelievable curveball, but here's what the young pitcher found out that sometimes you gotta get deflated before you can be filled up. When you're puffed up, you're gonna get rocked, but sometimes you get deflated before you get filled up. All of us need to get deflated before we can be filled by God. So how do we do it? Are we focused on reaching people more than simply keeping people? Well, how do we do it? We gotta look for people outside the church who intentionally include in the body of Christ. Some of you are sitting in a really nice chair today, and it's super comfortable. And you're like, isn't, and aren't these good chairs? I like them, I mean, they're just good chairs, right? And you're sitting there, and you're like, hey, I am coming to church today, and I'm so excited because God's gonna do something in me. God's gonna fill me up. And, and your concern is like, God, I wanna connect with you. What are you gonna do in me, and can I reflect back to you just your greatness? And, and it's great, and, but the truth is, you're more concerned about what God's gonna do in your chair than you are concerned about the empty chair on your row. So let me ask you again. Are you looking for people outside the church to intentionally include in community, in the body of Christ? So what happens? All the people, verse seven, saw this, that Jesus said, I gotta come to your house, and Zacchaeus gets all excited, right? All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to say the word mutter out loud three times. Real fast. All right, you wanna know what mutter sounds like? right? It's an onomatopoeia. It sounds like what it is. That's what the word is. Well, that's what happens in the crowd. Jesus, he's walking with the crowd. People are expected. They're hopeful. And all of a sudden he talks to Zacchaeus, I'm going to your house. And instantly matter, 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 matter. And they say what? They say he is gone to be the guest of a what? Oh no, you said that too nice. He's gone to be the guest of a what? Sinner, right? It's awful, right? Like, like, they're like, Ah, maybe he doesn't know. It's just, uh, at that moment, literally, the disciples they begin to hear, like the twelve, they're like, "Whoa, what just happened?" And so, literally, they probably were like, "Jesus is going to go stay at this guy's house." They're like, "Dude, we got to get alternate lodging." So they call up like the Desert Springs, you know, and they're like, "Hey, hey, uh, uh, yeah, I need twelve. Uh, yeah, we over Jesus. Yeah, and uh, uh, is he? No, no, he's not coming. No. Uh, well, he's actually going to stay with that Keyes. The line would go dead. Hello, hello. Right." All of a sudden, everybody, the religious people, those who perceive that they were righteous, begin to mutter that he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. What do they mean? This guy, Jesus is entering and inviting into community someone who has rejected community. Jesus understood something. If you want to throw a party, invite unlikely people. If you want to throw a party, invite unlikely people. What a beautiful thing that is, right? So often we try to invite a party and we make it just about us and just about our friends. But if you want a real celebration, if you want a real party, we got to become people who do what Jesus did. And if you want to throw a party, Jesus is saying you've got to invite unlikely people. So let me ask this question. Who around you and who around me intentionally rejects community? What does a person look like who pushes back, who rejects, community in our culture. It might be the self-sufficient rich person like Zacchaeus. Hey, I don't need any of that. I'm just secure in my wealth. How could you intentionally invite that person to community? It might be the invisible person, the one that no one sees. Some of you are students in the room or your youth or young people, and so often students who are in crisis or in trouble just say, I'm invisible. No one sees me. They might eat lunch by themselves. Man, they, you know There are people in our world who hate going to work or school because they just don't want to eat alone. I'd rather stay and eat at my cubicle. I'd rather stay and eat at my desk. i just because they're invisible. Nobody sees me. They go by their coffee and no one acknowledges who they are. They go throughout the world. We don't notice them. It might be an invisible person. It might be. The alcohol uh, it might be the workaholic. Our world would applaud that. Good job, look how hard worker you are. But you are intentionally rejecting community because you're making your identity what you do, your mission, what you think your mission is. And that day comes, that job closes, that title ends someday. And then where is your identity? And sometimes as a workaholic, we can avoid our family. We can avoid our community. We can just be about ourselves and driving the right car and making the right sales and doing the right deals. And you might actually say, I don't have time for community. The truth is you become a workaholic. You're rejecting community around you. Let me tell you, the person who you ought to invite to church is a person that you would think would never want to be invited to church. Invite the person that you're pretty sure would never want to be invited to church. In fact, you should be inviting the person who had a bad church experience. You almost feel bad. Like, if I invite you to church, it's like slapping your face, right? It's like sticking a knife in your wound. It's like poking a pin in your eye, right? They're like, I had a bad experience. Why would you invite me to church? You know my bad church experience. You say that's exactly why. I'm inviting you to church. Because you need community, and you need Jesus. And the enemy wants you to take your bad church experience and mistake Jesus for that person or that experience. And he wants to isolate you and question your identity and get you in an experience where he accuses you in your formative experiences and isolate you from community so you're easy pickings. And that's when the lion the devourer pounces on you. It might be the person that you keep bumping into. I believe that there are no accidents in some of that arena. I'm just telling you. If you keep bumping into the same person in different contexts, at the coffee shop, at the grocery store, uh, you see it in a movie theater, you're like, how do I know that person? Oh, they're the you know, and you're... I don't believe that there's accidents in that. I believe God keeps bumping you into people because he's saying, Will you invite them into community. Maybe we change our mindset and say, who do I keep bumping into, and is God saying, God's saying, listen, there's a reason. That's no accident you keep bumping into that person. Why you? So Make him go bump into the pastor. No, don't do that. He's got me bumping into people. He's having them bump into you because he wants you to ask. It might be the checker at Trader Joe's. It might be the gas station attendant. It might be the receptionist at your doctor's appointment. It might be the person with those crazy tattoos. You're like, show me your tattoos. What do those mean? It might be the door-to-door salesperson. But God wants you and I to look at people who intentionally tree themselves and reject community and invite them into community. The common thread among people who come to Christ and are saved is the existence of a friend who nagged them to go to church or come to youth group or go to a community group. One of the common denominators is a friend who would just nag them enough to get them into community. If you want to party, invite unlikely people. Luke 19 verse 8, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. And he uses a statement here, you see what happened is he came down out of the tree, they went to his house, they're having dinner, the crowd was allowed to go in almost any house in that culture, you could go out into what was like the courtyard or the patio. And so you're looking in the house, the doors are open, it's a Mediterranean climate, you're hearing what's going on, and in the course of that dinner Zacchaeus sees Jesus for who he is and he makes a decision for Christ. And in that moment he stands up and makes this great proclamation. And he uses the word if, and if you were outside on the patio, and you were listening to Zacchaeus, who has embezzled money from you, and he says, hey, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, you're going to go, what in the world? And i got to let you know that what is written there in the Bible doesn't translate as well into English. Because the word if there is actually the word, could be the word since, and we don't know if it's if or since except by the context, right? So what he's really saying is he's saying, listen, he's saying, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor and in the areas in which I have, in fact, since I've embezzled from people, I've cheated people out of something, I will pay back four times the amount. Now you've got to realize what he's saying. Because the Old Testament law says if you cheat somebody, if you steal from them you, for, to do restitution, you pay back the amount and add 20%. That's the penalty because you cheated somebody. So you pay back what you owed and you, pay, you add 20% to that. And then that'll be all good. That'll be, you know, water under the bridge. But what he says immediately is this, listen. He's saying, you see this house? See this big house I live in? It's going to change. You know what I drive? It's going to change because I've been embezzling. In fact, what I'm going to do, I know what the law tells me to do, but he's taking full responsibility and said what he says is if I've cheated anybody, I will pay back four times the amount of what I cheated, not just the amount plus 20%. Four times out loud, publicly, he's saying, it's all going to change. He's saying, I can't keep my house. I can't keep my lifestyle. He encountered Jesus, and he immediately began making things right with people. Did you hear me? He encountered Jesus, and he immediately started making things right with people. Some of you in this room you know Jesus is who he says he is. Uh, And you don't all the time wanna draw close to Jesus because you know if you draw close to Jesus, you're gonna have to make some things right with people. Isn't that true? Sometimes we don't wanna draw close to Jesus because if I do, I'm gonna to have to make some things right with people. We just know that there's a parallel because God has forgiven us everything that we're to forgive others around us. That because God has restored relationship with us, one of the markers of having restored relationship is to restore some relationship somewhere else. And that's what Zacchaeus instantly starts doing. He committed to restore relationship because he knew that's what God did for him. I mean, could you imagine how you would react if he just said, Hey, I found Jesus, I got religion, and so the past is the past. You're going, dude, I just got embezzled by you. If he just hey, it's water under the bridge, I got religion now. You would be so suspect, but the marker of someone who truly has encountered Jesus is that they do what is needed to be done to make things right with people. So Zacchaeus took full responsibility for the wrongs he had committed. He instantly did a fearless moral inventory and repaired what he could. He couldn't change how people think of him. But begrudgingly, they'd have to say, he did actually pay me back. They still may hate him for the rest of his life, but others are going to say, he's a new man. He is not that same guy anymore. He is one of us. See, when someone is intentionally included and is transformed by Jesus, they instinctively give to restore where they have broken community or relationship with other people. What's the marker? When I come into relationship with Jesus, I intentionally, as far as it depends on me, live at peace with everyone. I do what I can. And then their response is up to them and God. I'm going to take my responsibility in the matter. So Luke 19, verse 9, Jesus responds. He says, he said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a, listen, listen, a new title, a new identity. He says, this man is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So Jesus right away says, listen, you see what just happened with Zacchaeus? This man, he probably put his hand on his shoulder or something, right? This guy is now, Jesus said the most horrible thing to people who hated this guy's guy. He's now a true son of Abraham, just like every Jewish person in this whole city. He has as much ownership with Abraham as anyone else. Jesus gave him an identity. You are a son or a daughter of the Most High God whom God loves and with whom he is well pleased. That's what happened in Zacchaeus' house that day. Then Jesus says this statement. Jesus says this statement. He says, for the son of man, speaking of himself, that's an Old Testament Ezekiel passage statement. He's saying, for the son of man, speaking of the Messiah, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. Now, who did Jesus say that statement for? Was Jesus saying that statement to remind himself? Oh, by the way, that's right. I came to seek and save the lost. No. Was Jesus saying that for Zacchaeus? Hey, bro, just want to let you know, my whole mission in life is you. That's not who he said it for. Who did Jesus say that for? He said it for all the religious people out there. He said it for all the people who begin to say, God, I come to church today. I'm so excited for what you're going to do in me, and I've lost concern for the chair that's empty beside me. So Jesus comes along and Jesus says, listen, Zacchaeus, today in this house salvation has come and he says, you are a son of Abraham. He, says, he, he doesn't say sinner, he doesn't say tax gatherer, he doesn't say mutter among yourselves. Jesus says he is a son of Abraham and a friend of God. See, I think Jesus would say to all the Christians out there, you and I included, I love you. You are my son or my daughter. But if Jesus walked in this room today, he'd be like, hey, Christians, listen up. If you walked on this stage, I'd be walking off. It's you. It's all you. whatever you want to do, right? But if Jesus walked here today, I think he would say to all the Christians in the room, myself included, he would say, listen, I love you. You're my son or my daughter. But listen, today, you are not my primary focus. I came to seek and save those who are very far away from God. Now, does God want to encounter you in church today? Absolutely. But he would say, as much as I want that and as much as I'm going to do that, and it's happening right now in your heart here today as he's doing that, God is saying, understand my primary heart, my heart for you is to proclaim. My heart for you is to help people find their identity. My heart for you is to get you on mission because there's an empty chair beside you. And there's people who need hope in our culture. Now, I believe that what we do as a church is very honoring to God. I'm so proud of our church. I love the diversity that we have in here from every level, whether it's racial or economic, whether it's just, you know, you're a brand new believer. You've been a believer for a long time. I love that we can model what it looks like in the kingdom of God. And I love the way that we reach our community. And I love what we do in our world. But I want you to understand that what we do in here right now needs to make a difference in the world out there when you're on mission in your job and in your relationships, and in the people around you. And Jesus is saying, be like me. I came to seek and save the furthest out person, the one who's rejected community. Funny thing is we've all been one of those people, right? There was a time you and I were lost and not found. There was a time you and I were hopeless. There was a time you and I were treed and backed into a corner, and it's there that Jesus met us. See, I think the church that Jesus would attend, the church that Jesus would go to, is the church that becomes so attractive to the unchurched and the unrighteous and the broken relationship people that if Jesus walked through the back doors into this room today, he would look around and say, wow, they're all here. My people and those who are soon to become my people, they're all here. If you want to throw a party, invite some unlikely people. Well, How do we do that? Let's get practical, right? Let me give you some examples, and, and maybe, maybe the examples I gave you today are not the best because you're more creative in your situation than I am. So if these don't apply to you, you can just write them off because you're far more creative than I am, and you're gonna be like, God's gonna inspire you to do something outside the box that's better than what I could do. But I just got to say, listen, if you want to throw a party, invite unlikely people. How many of you are excited for Summer Olympics? Olympics are coming up. I don't know if you know this Olympic year. Uh, Do we not have sports fans in here? Do you not love those stories where they show like the person coming out of poverty and they win like a gold medal? I mean, come on. That is awesome, right? We love that. And so you're like, this is awesome. It's an Olympic summer. That's cool. But what if you begin to say, how could I throw a party, invite some people over for the Olympics and have an Olympian who's a believer share a testimony on video and it can just open up a conversation about Jesus? could you use Olympics to throw a party? How intentional would your summer be if you did that? How much would you look forward to it? What if you said, we're gonna throw a neighborhood party and on this particular day when there's a bunch of good Olympics on, we're gonna get together and have barbecue. What if you did that? You might find somebody who's just in financial debt and they share with you about that and you go, listen, man, our church, we do the Dave Ramsey financial peace class. Why don't you come this fall? I'll even attend with you or Let's see how we can be better stewards and get out of this thing called debt. And in that thing, they enter community. They get in groups. They learn each other. In fact, we do that class because we know that about 80% of the people who are in there have no church experience at all. We want to help the most unlikely people get out of debt because we find that when you bring them into community, oftentimes they find Jesus. And they learn biblical principles apply to their financial life. And if they apply and are true in my financial life, couldn't they also be true in my life. You might say, I backed myself into a tree. I've got hurts, I've got habits, I've got hangups, I can't break it, I am backed up, I'm treed. And so we have Celebrate Recovery because we all got hurts and habits and hangups. And that meets every Monday night at 7 p.m. And so would you invite a friend? Would you go with a friend the first time? Maybe you go with a friend with a doctor They've got a doctor appointment. They're nervous about it. Let me go with you. And while we're sitting in the waiting room, because you will wait, you can talk. Maybe for you, it's throwing a party for someone who you just know no one's going to throw a party for that person. And maybe that's you. Maybe you're reaching to immigrants or undocumented neighbors and just saying, but by their dress, by their attire, they obviously are making a faith statement that's not my faith. But they're exactly the person you and I should be inviting here. But what do we do? In Elk Grove, we're so super diverse, right? But you think that's intimidating and yet it's all relationship, isn't it? Jesus went to the one who had rejected the faith community of his day and he said, I'm staying with you today. Who's not here? Who could be here? If you wanna throw a party, invite unlikely people. Imagine what it would be like a year if, if each one of us could say, it's, it's point number three in your outline, but it's this, I played some part in someone crossing the line of faith. What if a year from now, we all looked around and you were like, I, I played some part, some part in someone actually crossing the line of faith. There are some of you in this room today that you're here because someone else nagged you or someone else invited you. And they, they didn't maybe play the main part, but they played some part in you coming to faith in Christ because somebody invited you. And it's not a competition. It's not like you get extra credit. It's not like you have to be there the moment that they accept Christ, and if you didn't, it was a loss. No, it's an invite. It's you play somebody. Jesus draws people to himself, but he uses people like you and I to invite them to set the date for someone to make a step of faith. But wow, what could you say in a year? Who would have thought? They're coming. In fact, they're coming. They might be bringing a family member or two. And you're like, I played some part in helping someone cross the line of faith, someone coming to life, someone becoming found because I got found by Jesus. Maybe you're here today because someone coerced you. Maybe you're here today as a young person. You feel like a POW sometimes because your parents make you come. Or maybe you're here today because you're searching out faith. Maybe you're here today because a persistent friend won't give up on you. Or maybe you're here today be, and you struggled when you walked up to this building and you saw that welcome sign out front and, and you were like, what am I doing in a church? And you struggled with that. And maybe, maybe you're just saying, I don't buy all this, but I'll be back and I like the people. This is the right place for you. Listen, there is a very real God who is nothing like your impression of church people. He wants relationship with you more than anything else. And once you meet him, you will become forever changed, like Zacchaeus, it's free. His offer of forgiveness for your sin, his offer of salvation is a free gift, but you must receive it, you must take it, you must cross the line of faith and finally experience relationship with God. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life. If today you realize that's me, I never realized that Jesus traded all his righteousness on the cross and offered it to me to cancel out my sin. And instead, he grabbed a hold of all my sin, and he paid for it on the cross. He paid God's righteous wrath against sin on the cross, and he canceled it out. And if that's you today saying, Jesus, I want to encounter you, I found myself treed back into a corner. I've trusted in myself and my externals, but I know on the inside I'm I need you. And if that's you today, you pray a prayer right where you're seated, just after me, like this. Just silently repeat it, or in your heart, you pray this God hears you. Just say, Jesus, today I give you me. I believe you died on the cross for my sin. That you were buried in the grave, that you rose to new life because you are God. And I ask you to forgive me of all my sin and make me a new creation on the inside. Because today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.